bit to John chapter 6. We're entering a new chapter in the Gospel of John. Uh, A lot of time, by the way, has transpired between chapter 5 and chapter 6, okay? As a matter of fact, you get to chapter 5, and he's in Jerusalem, verse 1 of chapter 5. Kind of give you a little background here, let you know we're in a different scene totally this morning as we were last couple of weeks, by the way. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 1, we see that he is in Jerusalem, and uh, verse 2 as well of chapter 5. In chapter 6, verse 1, we see he's near the Sea of Galilee. So Jesus has been going back and forth between Judea and Galilee and between Samaria. Chapter 2, for example, what, what, you know, what's the big story in chapter 2? He turns water into wine. That's in Cana of Galilee. Okay. Then in chapter 3, Nicodemus, back in Jerusalem. Chapter 4, the woman at the well in Samaria on his way back to Galilee where he heals the nobleman's son. Chapter 5, he's back in Jerusalem. Now he's back in Galilee. So he's just traveling back and forth and ministering all up and down there, okay? That kind of gives you an idea of where we're at and what he's been up to, actually preaching all over the place uh, throughout that whole region of Israel. But now we find our Lord in and around the sea, not in. Well, he does walk the water a little bit. (laughs) In and around the Sea of Galilee, literally. Well, he's on top of it. Anyway, we're going to get to that next week, actually. That's, I love that passage. So, Galileans for a minute. I really never expressed them. They're, they're really agrarian. They're, they're farmers. They're, they're different than the people down south, the Judeans in Jerusalem. The Galileans live more, more like day-to-day. They lived off the, the food of the earth. Okay, they were farmers uh, unlike the people down in Judea, down south around Jerusalem, they would be more sophisticated, more sophisticated in the way of the law, okay? More sophisticated in theology and Old Testament matters and prophecies. These folks would be more simple, okay? Hence, Jesus feeds 5,000. It makes sense to them, being farmers, basically, living day to day off the land. So let us stand together and let us read the first 15 verses of John chapter 6. The first 15 verses of John chapter 6. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore, Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? In verse 6, John gives a comment here. This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip now answered him in verse 7, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them, for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Hey, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise, also of the fish, as much as they wanted. 
When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, you inspired John to write this story down, to include it in his gospel. And therefore, it is inspired, it has purpose, it, it, it prospers us. It, it, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable for, for teaching, for reproof, for training in righteousness. It teaches about trusting your son in particular. So God, encourage, strengthen, mold, shape in our faith so that we can walk a much clearer path before others of following Christ so that they would see that he is the hope set before us, that each and every step we take is, is a trust in him, that he is our nourishment, he is our substance, he is our Lord, and he is our Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I hate, or I should say this, I hated tests when I was young. Actually, I didn't do very well with them. I didn't like history tests. I didn't like math tests. And I despised English tests. Okay? Till later on in college, I got saved and had to learn Greek. Then things just really changed. But we're not, I'm not there. I'm talking when I was little growing up, I was terrible in school. I knew I'd have a test coming up the next week. And did I prepare? No. My mother here? Not yet. She's on her way. There was an accident on 85. She's fine. She texted. I'm glad she's not here. Because she'd be going, oh, yeah, it brings back bad memories. But anyway, <laughs> she would often say, you ready for the test? I'm fine. I'm fine. If you have children, all they say is they're fine. Never mind. We'll go to that. another sermon for another day. They're not fine. <laughs> they're just covered. Anyway, I would, I'm fine. I'm, I'm and I, I squeak through every year. I mean, C's and D's just to get by. Okay? That was elementary, junior high, and high school. Having said that, what we have in our passage this morning is Jesus giving a test to Philip. Now, it's a different kind of test altogether, okay? When we take tests in school, it's to kind of find out where we're at, what is the level of knowledge we have over a particular subject. But this test is totally different. It's about their willingness to follow and trust Christ no matter the circumstance or the situation. Trusting in his power. Trusting in his resources. That's what this test revolves around. That's what the story revolves around verse 6. Because of all the verses, all the 15 verses, there's one, one editorial comment by John, and it's found in verse 6. So he stops writing about the story just for that moment, and he says in verse 6, this he was saying to test him. That is Philip in verse 5. For he himself knew what he was intending to do. Jesus goes, I know what I'm going to do. Let me test Philip here for a moment. Now, it could be now he wasn't just testing Philip, but maybe Philip as a representative of all the rest of the disciples. But there's a test going on here. A different kind of test. 
but not a test on how much I know, but a test of how willing am I to follow. Did you get that? You see, the earthly test we face in school is about how much I know. The test here is how willing am I to follow? How willing am I to trust Jesus to take care of the situation at hand? Right? And so let's look at this. Let's look at verses basically 2, 3, 4, and 5 set the scene for us. It really just basically sets the scene. He, a large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. So he was performing a lot of signs even after chapter 5 in Jerusalem going to Judea on his way. We see according to verse 2 that he's healing a lot of people. And he finally gets to his destination or at least where he wants to be. And he goes up on this mountain in verse 3 to rest, to sit down with his disciples. And so as him and his disciples are sitting there on this mountain, on this big hill, John also says, this is the time of the Passover. It wasn't that Passover yet, but it was coming. Verse 5, Jesus looked out from on top, looked at the, the valley, the field leading up to the mountain. He sees all these people coming. And they came because they saw him, witnessed him, heard of him healing a bunch of people. And so he says to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? All these people. And notice it's 500, five, excuse me, 5,000 men. Men. What about the women and children? Well, that means there's a lot more than 5,000 people that he fed. Okay? What's the test Exactly. And here it is. A lot of people get to this passage of feeding of 5,000 in John, and it's about the compassion of Christ, yes. But that's not what John highlights here. His highlights, verse 6. He's highlighting this to teach us something and to teach his disciples and us today about faith. That's what verse 6 is about. If I go on and spend 30 minutes about the compassion and how of Christ and how, oh, he just meets the needs of all the needs, that's not the point of this story. That's not why John includes these 15 verses. His point is simply in verse 6. He's going to test their faith. What exactly does it mean? Well, there's two ways to understand what it means when God tests our faith. One is found in the immediate context. What's that? Chapter 5 in Jerusalem. What did Jesus spend a lot of time teaching about his oneness with the Father? That he is equal with the Father. From that point on, he begins to travel up to Galilee. In other words, he's testing them not on just so much did they understand or comprehend intellectually his oneness with the Father, but do they trust him enough to follow him, to rely on him? It's one thing for us to understand him and for me to quote him and for me to have the theological knowledge to describe him, but do I follow him? He had just recently taught them about his oneness with the Father in chapter 5. And you know what? His disciples were not ignorant. Let me paint the picture for you right now because it's really a similar picture that we have, that we live and find ourselves in today. Here's their picture. 
they understood that the Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem were out to kill Jesus because of what he taught. These disciples are not that ignorant. They're not ignorant. They're hearing what Jesus is saying, and they're watching the reaction of the Jews. In chapter 5, verse 16, for this reason the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Here you got the 12 disciples. They're following Jesus, and, 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 and they're watching the crowd's response to him. They're not stupid. They're witnessing the fact that there are people in Jerusalem who did not like Jesus. And they saw the persecution. They heard the ridicule of their master. And then in verse 18, they knew, in chapter 5, they knew that some of them wanted to kill him. They're not stupid. What pressure? Wait a minute. If all these Jewish leaders back in Jerusalem, all these people we admired spiritually and religiously, they're not getting along with this Jesus we're following. As a matter of fact, they're wanting to kill him. What does that mean for us? What pressure? You see what's going on? And, And so now Jesus tests them. Okay? What I don't think is going on is you have these two isolated events that are unrelated to each other. Everything Jesus does is related to to one another, right? His teaching, his works, his signs, his healings, his teachings, his oneness, his deity, he's the Messiah. It's all interconnected and interrelated. And so now we find him testing Philip and or his disciples. If Philip, you want to take as a representative of the, of the 12, that's fine. But they knew the Jews reacted negatively to his teachings back in Jerusalem. And they were seeking to kill him. And they knew why. They knew, why because of the signs. They knew it was because of what he claimed. Who he claimed to be. So here's the question. Therefore, to what degree did the disciples believe him? To what degree? This brings us to number two of why or what kind of tests. And that is found in John chapter 20. It's found in the reason for this gospel. Listen to this. verse 30 and 31 of chapter 20. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these that John includes in his gospel are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Now, John takes it up a step further. What do you mean by belief? He then describes what this belief is like. Last phrase. And that believing... By continually ongoing belief. In other words, enduring and persevering belief. You may have life in his name. Not a one-time belief. Not a one-time, I trusted him years ago. No. It is a faith, the faith that God gives. Okay? The faith that God gives is an enduring, persevering faith. That's what it is. 
That's what John's referring to. And he's kind of giving a little added definition of what this faith or characteristic of what this faith looks like. It's a faith that endures all the negativity. It's a faith that endures all the external pressure that comes from society and culture and the elites and the theologians that contradict Jesus. Are you with me now? It's an enduring, persevering faith. It doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter what the world's saying. I am going to follow Jesus no matter what. And the reason why Jesus tests them is to bring this kind of faith to the surface. Are you with me? To bring it to the surface, to develop it, and to mature it. Let me follow through with that for a moment. Turn with me to James chapter 1. Go back towards the end of the New Testament. James chapter 1. Verse 1, he begins. Chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed abroad, greetings. Jewish believers, Jews who profess to know Christ, because of the persecution in Jerusalem at the time of this letter, they, they were forced to leave home, to scatter, to, to pack up, to take their families and go to lands they'd never been to. Because of their faith, they were persecuted. They had to leave. Notice what he says in verse 2. Consider it all joy. You've got to be kidding me. Really? My brethren, when you encounter various trials, they were going through trials, weren't they? When you are forced to leave your, 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 your home and to pack up and even leave your friends because of your faith, that's a trial, folks. But notice verse 3. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Here, here it is. God takes that trial and uses it as a test, not to, to understand how much you know, but to see how much you're willing to follow. He's producing endurance. So when James talks about trials and a test, he's coming at it, he's focusing on, on endurance. That your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. And I love this, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The idea there in the Greek is more and more and more complete. Not that you become perfect, that's in heaven. But until then, you become more complete in your faith, more trusting. Okay? Stop for a minute. You've been through a trial this week, I know it. I don't know what kind of shape, size, or whatever. It could be physical. It could be spiritual. It could be internal. It could be coming from culture. It could be through circumstances. It could be on the job. It could be with a family member. It could be with a coworker. It could be the flu. It could be whatever. It's called the providence of God. So I think too often, and I'll speak for myself or for representing all of us, when we go through trials in life, whatever shape or form, I kind of go through it kind of leaving God out of the picture and forgetting the providence of God and his care for me. Even if something as small as being sick. And what do you say? If you lack wisdom, ask him for it. Well, if I'm not thinking about him during the trial, I'm not going to ask him for a thing. But if you see that God has got you in a test, not to trip you up, 
not to make you sin. As a matter of fact, he's going to go on to say later on in chapter 1, when you're in this context of a trial, do not say when you are being tempted, I am being tempted of God. No. You see, here's what's going on. You've got a trial in your life, whatever the shape or form. God uses it as a test to prove your faith, to, get, to produce endurance. The devil's over here wanting to use the same trial to tear you down and to rip you up and to make you fall. And so during this trial, God is testing you, okay, wants to strengthen your faith and make you persevere and endure to continue to follow him, to become stronger in that. Meanwhile, the devil and the world are appealing to your flesh to try to get you to crumble the sin and to fall. Does that make sense? I love verses 9, 10, and 11. But the brother of humble circumstances, that my poor brother in Christ or sister, those who do not have it that well. Then he says the rich man, verse 10. In other words, whether you're rich or poor, you are not immune to trials. Why do you think 9, 10, and 11 are in there in the broader context of trials? Because it does not, trials do not discriminate based upon what you have or what you don't have. A rich person has just as many trials as a poor person. They just might come in a different shape, size, and forms. That's all, but they're all trials. Look at verse 12. Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial, that continues to endure, that continues to follow pursue after Christ, even though his circumstances have him down. Let me just throw Job in there for a second. Sometimes when you're going through a trial, you might wonder, God, where are you at? This one's last for months, if not even years. We don't even talked about how long they can last. But what's it there for? Why does God test us? To produce endurance. Persevering faith. True saving faith endures. True saving faith is a persevering faith. And God, every step of the way of his children's walk of their life, he's with them using circumstances and people and events in their life for this very purpose. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, the very next letter right after James. 1 Peter chapter 1. Oh, I love this. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is according to his great mercy, has he's caused us to be what? Born again. I am alive unto Christ. I have faith in Christ because of God. Bottom line, he caused it. To a living hope. That's indicative of something future. I'm alive to something that he has for me in the future. And that is my inheritance in Christ, he goes on to say. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain, verse 4, an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away. It's reserved in heaven for you. You got things reserved in heaven for you, by the way. And they're not just spiritual bleeps and bulbs, physical inheritances waiting for you in heaven. That's why it's such a blessed hope. Verse 5 Who are present tense? Meanwhile, you're protected by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. 
So here you are today. You're alive unto God. He's awakened you. You're born again. You understand who Christ is. Meanwhile, you have this hope that one day down the road, you're going to be with him in heaven, and you've got an inheritance waiting for you. Now, from this point on, from this Sunday to whatever that day is, when you die or Christ comes, think of each and every day as one lap around a track and you're in a marathon race. One day is a lap. We're not doing sprints. We're running a marathon. And consider each day going one lap around the track. So you probably have thousands of laps to go. Each and every day is a lap. And who's at the end of the finish line, according to Hebrews 12, 1 and 2? Who's waiting for you with that inheritance? Jesus Christ. I added that, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. It just, it just, makes it, it just blows this picture up for us. It's just beautiful. This is what God's telling us today. Right? There's no ifs, ands, or buts, or maybes. It is. Why? Why does he start verses 3, 4, and 5 like this? Because verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, hello, back on earth, <laughs> back on earth, what? If necessary, you have distressed. You, are, you have been distressed by various trials. Notice verse 6, there's two words that are really opposite of one another. You rejoice, and yet you're under stress. Bipolar might not be all that bad. I'm glad you got the joke. Okay, that was a joke. We rejoice because we're born again and made alive to this inheritance that waits us. But we're down on earth. Let's get back down to earth for a moment and face reality. We're in this marathon race that one day at a time is a lap. And meanwhile, each and every day there are trials await us. So what's the point of the, the trials? What, what is the point of them? What is the point of the test? Verse 6, we rejoice because of our future, yet daily we might be under stress or distressed by trials. Why? Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith, whereas James came at it from the angle of endurance or perseverance, Peter's coming at it from the angle of genuineness. He wants to, your, God wants, the faith that he gave you, he now is going to purify it. Here's the picture, gold. Being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. When you, when they dig gold out of the ground or like gold rush out of the stream in Alaska or wherever they might be, they, they take it and it's dirty. There's junk mixed in with it. How do they purify it? putting it under fire. It separates the dross to make that gold pure, to make it stronger. That's the idea here. That's what God's doing with that trial in your life. That's the purpose of the test. Not only to give us endurance and perseverance, but to make our faith more genuine. Now, why would he do that? Because, beloved, it's only going to get tougher. Think back where we're at in John chapter 5. <clears throat> Down in the southern part of Israel, in Judea, in Jerusalem, the Jews are plotting or wanting to kill Jesus and probably had started plotting by now. We get to verse 15 of our passage that we're at in chapter, excuse me, chapter 6. 
And you know what? They're going to want to seize him and make him king. But Jesus responds by walking away and being alone. He's saying, no, no, that's not why I'm here. How disappointing was that to that crowd of Galileans who wanted him to be king? So here down in Jerusalem, he's got people mad at him because he claimed to be Jesus. Now, at the end of our story of the feeding of the 5,000, there's a group of people, multitude of people who wanted to seize him and make him king, but he's going to say, no, I got nothing to do with that. Imagine how disappointed they will be. Then by the time we get to chapter 6, verse 66, many disciples will leave him. Meanwhile, here you have these lonely disciples following Jesus in this big context of the Jews and Galileans. And now later on in chapter 6, people are going to be fallen by the wayside. And so he turns to Peter and says, who do you say that I am? We live in a world today that's no different than back then. Don't we? Don't we? We're in a marathon race. And as we walk in this world, and I love what Jesus will later on pray in chapter 17, do not take them out of this world, but set them apart while they're in the world. He's going to pray that for you. For me, for us, for the church. But meanwhile, the world is getting more oppressive towards Christianity, towards Christ. Meanwhile, they're rejecting him more and more. The opposition is only going to get tougher, right? And it's not just opposition from the world, but when the world has slowly begun to creep into the church, it's going to come from the church itself as well in the form of legalism or liberalism or whatever ism you want to add to it, okay? But the whole purpose of this is to get our eyes off of Christ. God has the test in your life so that you will gaze more closely at Christ. Satan takes that that same trial to get your eyes off of Christ and on your circumstances. So let's get to the response. Wow, okay. Go back to John chapter 6, our main passage this morning. Love Philip. And then Andrew's answer here in verse 7, 8, and 9. Philip answered, we have 200 denarii worth of bread. That might have been months of, of salary. It wasn't even close to feeding so many people. It's not sufficient, he says. Notice what Philip does. The first thing he does is he looks at his own resources. Hello. He looks at his own resource, which we, I would do the same thing. I mean, I'm not here and he's here. Call me Philip. Okay. I'm just, he's just, I, I'd be walking. He's, he's walking in my shoes. I'd say to, I'm be like, the savings account only has so much in there. I can't do this. And it's savings. I don't know if I want it anyway. We won't go there. Okay. Then notice the other response by Andrew. It's almost like he's saying, well, let's add to this. There's a got little young man over here. He's got loaves and fishes, but if you add that to the money we have, it's still not going to be enough. I think that's what they were thinking. We still come short. Instead of looking to the Savior at that moment, they look to themselves for the answer. Instead of looking at the power of Christ in his ability, they were looking to their own resources. This is not wealth, health, prosperity gospel here. 
That's not what this is. It's simply a story about will you trust Christ? Will you follow him? Right? The, the, the church grows because of the gospel, not because of human resources. That will totally change your perspective of a worship service right there. Jesus tells us, well, John tells us what he did in verse 10 through 13. He had the people sit down. Now, there was much grass in that place, verse 10. So the man, the men, excuse me, sat down in a number about 5,000. I think he's describing the number of men that sat down. And I think when they handed out the bread and the fish, they handed it to the men, and the men would give it out to their families. It seems to be what's going on there. He took the loaves and he multiplied everything. Uh, You know, there's no rational, rational, reasonable answer to this. It was a miracle. I can't explain it. Here's what you have going on here. He who created the fish on day number five in creation, he's just multiplying it there before their eyes. It's a miracle. It's supernatural. You cannot explain the supernatural. I can't before you begin to explain to you how that happened. It's beyond the natural. Christ just did it. Why? Because he's God. He's, he's, he's communicating to them, I am the one back in Genesis 1. I'm the one that created this fish. I'm the one that created the flour and the pla- you know, for all this, for the bread. Uh, uh, I can do what I want with it. This is who is before you. Which teaches us another thing. He who is the creator of the universe is also the sustainer of the universe and the provider for his creation. That's why we give thanks at meals. Though I cooked it, though I went to the grocery store, and, grocery store and shopped for it, and though I saw that meat nicely, gently packed up in, in the freezer section, it ultimately an animal had to get killed. And who created that animal? God. The lettuce, God. So, you know, I think we... And see, you're talking to Galileans. See, the problem with me today is that I take everything for granted. We don't live in an agrarian society anymore where we have to really go out and till the land and wait for it to produce. It's just automatically there for me. I just got to go to a store and go get it. Well, these folks, they lived the land. They tilled the soil. And so to them, this was awesome. Look at verse 14 and 15. Excuse me, verse 14. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. They're convinced this was the prophet that Moses spoke of back in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. 18, 15 through 19, it says this. Moses writes, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. For your countrymen, you shall listen to him. Verse 18, I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you. They thought this was that prophet. So verse 15, what do we do with such a prophet as this? This is, this is the second Moses, so to speak. This is a second Moses. The first Moses delivered us from Egypt. 
wait a minute, wait a minute. We got a second Moses. We're under the oppression of Rome. The second Moses is going to deliver, Moses is going to deliver us from the oppression of Rome. He's going to do the same thing the first Moses did, and though it was with Egypt there, it's going to be with Rome for us. You see what's going on? And so Jesus perceived that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, which is implying, I'm not going there on Jesus' part. It's not what I am here for. This is not why I came. Jesus would explain later on in 8 John 18, 36, his kingdom would not be of this world. In other words, he did not come to change this world. He did not come to change a nation. He did not come to change a culture. He did not come to change a society. He did not come for that. He did not come to deliver people from social injustices. He did not come for that. If he did, he utterly failed, by the way. He did not come to deliver people by means of political influence. He came to redeem sinners. And he would not allow anything to get in the way of him dying for his sheep. Dying for those the Father would give to him. He would not let anything or anyone get in the way of you and him. Wow. And he had opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to to go another direction but he stayed focused on that cross every step of the way. Because by looking at that cross, he had you in mind. He came to redeem those the Father was going to give to him. And he loses not a one, he will tell us in chapter 10. Not a one. Now, I don't want to be extreme here, okay? It's not that, therefore, we see social injustices in the church, the Christians go, ignore it. No, that, that's extreme, okay? We should, of all people, point it out. But instead of pointing it out like, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's bad, why don't we, why don't we instead of doing it this way, do it by this way, by how we live with one another, how we treat one another, how we act with one another, how we help one another. Why doesn't the church be an example of social, racial justices itself before it points the finger to a lost and dying world that doesn't know better and that cannot fix itself? That's all I'm saying, right? It's about testimony. That's, that's, that testifies to the power of the gospel, not just in, in Pastor Jim's life, but, but, but in our lives together as community and our love for each other. Here's the lesson for us today. The gospel is not about politics. It's not about social justice. It's, it's not about wealth. It's not about living your best life now. It's not about social causes or cultural change. It's about God's redeeming love that's in Christ It's about Christ laying down his life for the sheep. It's about 
Jesus Christ being the only one that has the power to deliver from the bondage of sin, that has the power to forgive, that has the power to deliver from the Father's wrath and His Father's judgment. That's only in Christ alone. That's our message. That's why we're here. Hence, that's why Jesus, in verse 15, the last phrase, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Because he says, I got nothing to do with that. That's not why I am here. Listen, listen, it's incredible and it's powerful and it's compassionate as it was for Christ to feed 5,000 plus, 10,000 people. It is even more so powerful, more compassionate for him to deliver a soul from hell, from the condemnation of the wrath of the Father, from the judgment of God. So at the end of the day, not only did the disciples have the religious leaders mad at their leader, not only did the Galileans, a multitude of them, at least 5,000 plus, upset with him that he wouldn't let, that, that he wouldn't be their king on earth. Later on in chapter 6, many disciples, are you with me? You all this disappointment. Here's a plain case of people, of humanity, whether an individual or a large group, wanting to use Jesus for their own purposes. Where Jesus came for the purpose of the Father, and the Father's purpose was to redeem you, to live, to love you, to redeem you, to adopt you, to deliver you, not from any regional country or oppressive power on earth, but for the infant, to, but, but to deliver you from the oppression of sin, the bondage of sin, the power of sin. Only He could do that. He is about the business of populating the kingdom of heaven with the church on earth. That's why he came. But all these folks wanted to use Jesus for personal gain. And when the church uses Jesus for personal gain, how do you know when that begins to happen? When the church makes man the center of attention and not Christ. It's about the, his kingdom and his righteousness. It's about his glory. And listen, when you look at the scriptures and you understand the, the inheritance that awaits us, that makes any kind of inheritance on earth just pale. It just, it just pale. So my encouragement is for us, understand that God is always in the business of testing for the purpose of, of molding and shaping your faith so it becomes more endure and perseveres. And we need that because here's why. Trials don't get any easier. It's that God strengthens your faith. Not that trials get easier, but God strengthens your faith. He, he produces that perseverance. He matures it. He's, he, it's like gold. He's making it through the fire of trial. He's making it more genuine, stronger, you know, gold that's full of dross is weaker than pure gold. God is about the business of purifying your faith. You want to know why? Because the more pure it is, the more glory it gets. 
It's all about him. From him, through him, and to him are all things. May that be our doxology. Let's Each and every day, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, thank you that through the disciples, we today as disciples learn that once, you, once we trust Christ, we're born again. We have true saving faith, and you begin to test it. You begin to mold it and shape it to make it what you want it to be, and that we, we, we grow in resolve and to follow Christ regardless of what the circumstances, the pressure of this world, the pressure of liberalism, the pressure of doubt, the pressures of, of, of the elite, the, uh, all those who deny Christ and say, in spite of what, what people say, God, they are nothing but used as a test in your hands to make our faith more genuine and to enable it to endure a more intense opposition of you. And as the world is telling us no, you're refining our faith so that we will have the resolve to say yes. I'm going to follow Jesus no matter what. The world might tell me stop. The world might tell me I'm crazy. Because of your redeeming love, because of your saving faith, we persevere, we endure, we follow after Jesus regardless of what the world tells us. God, thank you for not leaving us alone. Father, you truly not only justify the sinner, but you are intimately involved in setting us apart, sanctifying us, molding us and shaping us further into the image of Christ. Open up our eyes to see and our ears to hear, knowing by your hand of providence you are orchestrating events, and trials and circumstances in our life so that we gaze all the more at Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you.